0: Jesus, we praise you uh, for who you are, the life that you lived, and the life that you gave. Uh, You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and all that we have and ever need and would want, Lord, is found in you, and so we praise you today. That's our desire, uh, Lord. Uh, As individuals, that's our desire as a church family. We want to praise you today. You are King Jesus, and we thank you. And, uh, Father, we pray uh, for your presence to continue to move and work in this place today. Uh, This time is yours. It belongs to you. And I pray that you'd speak through me, uh, speak through your word now as uh, we look a little more closely at it. And would you open up our hearts and our minds uh, to hear from you today, God, because that's what we want. We want to hear from you, and we want to respond to whatever it is uh, that you have for our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. And thanks to our team for leading us in worship this morning. Thanks for singing with us. Uh, If you're new here at Genesis, we certainly want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor, and we'd love the chance to meet you uh, before you go today. And if you've got your Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 19 as we continue our study uh, through the gospel of John. And as you're turning there, let me share with you uh, a little fun story that I came across this past week. In, In her book, The God Who Hung on the Cross... Journalist Ellen Vaughn retells a gripping story about how the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, came to a country, a small village in Cambodia. Uh, she says, in September 1999, a, a pastor by the name of Toy Sing traveled to the Kampong Thom province in northern Cambodia, a place where Christianity was virtually unheard of. But much to Sing's surprise, when he arrived in this small rural, rural village, the the people he warmly embraced him and. The message about Jesus, and when he asked the villagers about their openness uh, to the to the gospel, an older woman shuffled forward, bowed, grasped Singh's hands, and said, "We have been waiting for you for twenty years." And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who hung on the cross. You see, in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, uh, a brutal communist-led regime, took over Cambodia, destroying just about everything in its path. And when the soldiers finally descended on this small rural village, this northern village in 1979, they immediately rounded up all of the villagers, men, women, students, and children, and forced them to start digging their own graves. And after the villagers had, had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some screamed out to Buddha, others screamed out to demonic spirits or to their ancestors. But one of the women started to uh, cry to pray. Uh, based on a childhood memory she had been told, a a story that her mother had told her that she only remembered as a God who hung on a cross. And so the woman prayed to this unknown God on the cross out loud, and surely she believed that if if this God who had known suffering knew of their suffering, that if indeed He was a a God of compassion, that He would come to their aid. Well, suddenly her solitary cry and prayer became one great wail and prayer of the entire village. They started praying again to this God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, the wailing slowly turned to a quiet crying. There was an eerie silence in the muggy jungle air. And as has been recorded, they slowly turned around, these villagers did, including this woman, to face their captors to discover that all of the soldiers were gone. And as the old woman finished telling her story, She told Pastor Singh that ever since that humid day 20 years before, the villager, she had been waiting, waiting for somebody to come and to tell the rest of the story about the God who had hung on a cross. There is nothing more powerful or life-changing than the story of our Savior Jesus Christ who gave his life On the cross. That that is the person that we have been singing about here this morning. And it's my privilege to be able to share with you his story today. But my prayer for you this morning is that you won't just simply hear this story. And I realize that for some of us, if you've been around church for a long time, like it's possible to hear a story like this, and we think we already know all of the details and it's done its work in us, and so we sort of back away from it. But I don't want you to do that. I'm praying that today that this story it might change your life in some powerful way because if you've never put your trust in Jesus before, like today could be the day that you make a choice like that. But for the rest of you, Those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, well, I want to remind you that good things can come from regularly returning to a story like this one that we're going to uncover today. And remember, remember what the disciple John says, even about his own words and about particularly chapter 19 that we're going to look at today. He says, I have written these words so that you will believe and I have written these words so that you will grow that you will be transformed in your own life. And that's good because we forget, right? It's easy when life circumstances uh, come upon us, like we can forget, we, we pull back, we, we lose hope, we beat ourselves up or count ourselves out. The good news is still the good news is one I want to look at today, that Jesus died for you. And when you put your faith and trust in him, it can make all of the difference for you in this world. And so John chapter 19, if you're not already there, we've been reading through the book of John, All year long. We've got just a few weeks left. But John chapter 19 is where we find the story of Jesus, our King, and his willingness to die on a cross. But before we jump into the details of John chapter 19, I want to back up for just a moment and pick up a theme that really began to emerge in John chapter 18 last week, a theme that really ends up setting the tone for what we're going to discuss today. Because last week in John chapter 18, we learned that Jesus was arrested by an angry crowd of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders. And there were at least two meetings that Jesus was taken to, uh, two two, two Jewish officials. And then finally, Jesus was handed over to the Roman governor of the day for this area, a guy by the name of Pilate. And Pilate was the most powerful man in Jerusalem at the time. He had the authority to release Jesus, and he had the authority to execute Jesus. And when Jesus was brought before Pilate... Pilate asked Jesus one direct, simple question. It's in John chapter 18, verse 33. He asked him, are you the king Of the Jews? Now, this is a loaded question for many reasons. For starters, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, God made a promise to Israel's king at the time, a man, a king by the name of David. And that promise is recorded in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, where God said to David, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom verse 13 he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and then if you skip over a couple of verses still in chapter 7 there verse 16 the Lord says your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever what does it mean Well, for centuries, the Jews had been waiting for God to keep his promise and to send a king from David's family line, someone that indeed would rule over Israel finally and forever and for always. The problem, these people just couldn't see it in Jesus. They couldn't get their minds around the possibility that it was Jesus because things weren't going the way they hoped or expected. Now, Pilate, he wasn't Jewish, all right? He didn't care about these prophecies, likely didn't even know these prophecies about a Jewish king coming. And so why would he ask Jesus if he indeed was the king of the Jews? Well, go back a few chapters, John chapter 12, we would have looked at this maybe six weeks ago or something. Call it Palm Sunday four days prior to what's happening here in John chapter 19, if you're following it chronologically. Jesus arrives in the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. The people line the streets. They wave palm branches, and they're shouting, as John records, in John chapter 12, verse 13, Hosanna, which means come save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Israel. That's how you honor royalty. That's how you welcome a king in Israel. Now, I'm guessing that since Pilate was the Roman governor of Jerusalem, he had heard about the crowd. He had heard about these shouts for Jesus as king. And so here's Pilate's chance to ask about that. And why wouldn't he want an explanation from Jesus himself? And so John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus responds to Pilate this way. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now, while Jesus doesn't come right out and acknowledge his kingship, he certainly not denied it either especially in his talk about kingdoms. He hints at the fact that he indeed is the eternal king that was promised by God so many years before. Again, he references his kingdom. And if you keep reading John chapter 18 and even into John chapter 19, John explains that after meeting with Jesus, Pilate tells the religious leaders that he's got no reason to find any basis to charge Jesus with any wrongdoing. In other words, Pilate really seems at least willing to pronounce him innocent and set him free. But unfortunately, Pilate also felt the need to keep the peace in Jerusalem. All right, that's his responsibility. He knew that Rome was always watching and that these Jewish leaders weren't going to back down without a fight. And so when we flip the page to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, the disciple John records this, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And your Bible might say scourge, Uh, It's the same thing, two words describing the same thing. Flogging or scourging was a brutal form of punishment that involved stripping a person naked, uh, tying their hands to a post, and then whipping their back repeatedly with leather strands uh, that were often, often contained uh, shards of of bones or glass uh, or something else sharp. The goal was to shred the victim's back uh, down to the raw flesh to the point that even the internal organs would be exposed. To, you, you may have heard references to 40 lashes. To be sentenced to 40 lashes was a death sentence. Uh, 39 lashes was to beat someone with an inch of their life. According to Dr. Randy Smith, no one was really counting either. The Romans were just really, really good at achieving maximum punishment and suffering. And honestly, flogging, they would say, was so devastating that most didn't survive it anyways. Even those who would typically would crawl off into a corner and would die within a couple of weeks from something like tetanus. But why why did Pilate order such a brutal punishment? Well, I think to certainly keep the peace He had nothing to lose to make an example out of Jesus. But also, again, to remind the Jews at the end of the day that he was still very much in control. And this is where the theme of Jesus being king really starts to come into greater focus. Because look at what John writes in verse 2. He says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed Jesus in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And so, if you notice, they put a purple robe on Jesus. Purple was an an imperial color a color of royalty meant for a king but they're not honoring Jesus they're just simply mocking him they also shoved twisted together and shoved a crown of thorns on his head like what a brutal addition to to what was already a painful and humiliating situation, but, but is it possible that the crown carries an even deeper meaning? I was reading that if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we learned that one of the effects of man's sin against God, the scriptures record, is that the ground was to be uh, cursed, with uh, to produce thistles. And thorns, and so when the soldiers slammed this crown of thorns on Jesus' head, they did it to mock him as a so-called king. But in hindsight, God might also have been using it as a reminder of the pain and death that man's sin, that our sin had ushered into the world. And now Jesus is beginning to bear the weight of the sins of the world through his flogging, but also with a robe and a crown and eventually the cross. And in John chapter 19, verse 5, John writes that after they did this to him, that Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, here is the man. It can also be translated basically as, look at this poor, despicable creature. And I don't know if we can even possibly begin to imagine what Jesus would have looked like at this point in time. And if you've seen the passion of the Christ before, there are certainly those very brutal images of what something like that might have caused a person to look like. Whatever the case, it was a gruesome scene and one that God had revealed to the prophet Isaiah 700 years before in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14, the prophet Isaiah records that just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred by human likeness. And you get the sense here that Pilate is making an appeal. Uh, on behalf of Jesus to the Jews, basically saying, look at this poor guy, look at the situation that he's in. He suffered enough. Let him just simply crawl away and die. But Jesus' misery continued because in verse 6, we read, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis or charge against him. This is the third time that Pilate says, I find no charges against him. Pilate was willing to release him, realizing that his point had been made, but the religious leaders weren't satisfied, and so they demanded even more. And so we pick it up in verse 7, John chapter 19 verse 7 when John writes that the Jewish leaders insisted we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God when Pilate heard this he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace he went to Jesus saying to him where do you come from he asked Jesus but Jesus gave him no answer do you refuse to speak to me Pilate said don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And if I just stop there for a moment, like you can't help but ask as you read this dialogue, and we talked a little bit about this last week, like isn't Pilate in charge? But it, but it certainly appears like Jesus is almost kind of taking control of the situation of the interrogation here. Like, why is Pilate so afraid? Like, what, what seems to be rattling him about all that's going on here? And then Jesus. And when you consider that even though Jesus has been falsely accused, mocked repeatedly, beaten foolishly, there just seems to be this sense about him that he's not afraid. Like, like why so confident? Like how how does Jesus demonstrate so much self-control and peace when he's suffering so much? Let's not make it more complicated than it is. Jesus knows that his father is in control. Jesus understands why he came to this world and the work that he came to do. And for that reason, he is willing to submit to the, the authority of his father, and there is nothing that's going to stop him from finishing the work that he has come to do. And so you get this sense that Pilate doesn't know what to do about any of this. And in verse 12, we read that from, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king, Opposes Caesar. Remember, Pilate had one job in Jerusalem. Keep the peace, keep your job. Lose the peace, lose your head. And Pilate knew he was one bad report away from losing his role or worse yet, losing his life. And so when the religious leaders challenged his authority in regards to Caesar, it was a direct threat that they were willing to go all of the way to the top, to Rome. Call it the ultimate trump card to get what you want. And verse 13 Pilate responds, John says, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabata. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, even though the Jews have Pilate trapped. He's still in charge because you can call his response here kind of a sarcastic sucker punch, basically saying, if this is the king you want, this is the king you get. And what was the crowd's response? Once again, verse 15, they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And it's ironic and devastating when you think about it because if you remember, the Jews hated the Romans, hated them with passion. They hated their oppression. They hated their brutality. They despised their leadership. And yet they hated Jesus even more, so much so that they would be willing to pledge their loyalty to Rome, to the king, to Caesar, rather than this so-called Jesus. And what was it about Jesus that they despise so much like because from our perspective doesn't it look so obvious i mean especially when you consider that for these religious leaders like they knew the scriptures better than anyone they knew the prophecies they they heard jesus teach they saw the miracles for themselves they they watched the way that jesus treated and interacted with others like he could how could there be any doubt that jesus was indeed the king that they had been waiting for the very one that god had promised to send through david's line Honestly, he wasn't the kind of king they were looking for. He didn't operate the way they wanted. He forced them to look at life and in a way that made people very uncomfortable. Jesus required that they very much look inward at their own lives, their own heart, their own sin and and realizing their deep need for a savior. He also appeared too weak. They wanted a decisive, strong, militaristic type of leader, someone who would overthrow and destroy him once and for all, but but that's not Jesus. That's not why he came, and therefore the people determined, you're not the king we want. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus was precisely the king they needed. And so in verse 16, Pilate finally caved, and it says that he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And what I want to do from there is I want to just open my Bible to John chapter 19 with you and picking it up there at the end of verse 16 and starting with verse 17. I want to just read the rest of this chapter with you and just ask that you follow along with me and Maybe consider these words and this description in your own heart and mind. Verse 17, it says, Carrying his cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with two others. And we'll come back to that detail in just a moment. One on each side, Jesus in the middle. Verse 23, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took care of her, took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, "'It is finished,' and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down." The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken and as another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced verse 38 later joseph of arimathea asked pilate for the body of jesus now joseph was a disciple of jesus but secretly because he feared the jews with pilate's permission he came and took the body away he was accompanied by nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Not the king they wanted, but precisely the king they needed. Which leads us to the question like, who is this king that hung on the cross? And why in the world that he have to die. And I just want to say that we need to be careful when we ask a question like that, careful that we're not calling God and his motives into account, because to wonder why God didn't accomplish things in some other way is to imply that there must be something else, that there must be something better. But it takes I think I realize, we realize that it just takes faith to believe and to trust that God's ways are right and just and that Jesus is precisely the kind of king and sacrifice that we need. And And here's what I know and here's what I believe and I know what many of you believe too and what Scripture teaches about life and about sin and about the cross. See, the first few chapters of Genesis remind us that God created an earth and He created man and woman and He called them good. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands, a punishment was necessary, uh, required. A, a judge, you could say, who allows sin to go unpunished is not a righteous judge. Like overlooking sin would make a holy God a very unjust God. And so death is God's just consequence for sin. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans six twenty three that the wages of of sin is death. And unfortunately, there's no amount of good works that any one of us can do to change that. Like, it's impossible. Like, there is there is no amount of good things that any one of you can do, that I could do, or that we could do collectively to make ourselves right, to, to purify us before God, because as Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, that all of us, because of our sin, have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are just basically filthy rags and it's not just Adam and Eve either like every human has been guilty of disobeying God's righteous laws because as Romans chapter 3 verse 23 reminds us all of us have sinned every single one of us we all fall short of the glory of God and sin is not just the big things even though it is it's not just the big things like murder or violence but it's also things like the love of money and the greed that is often found in us and the way that we treat others and the way that we hate our enemies. It's things like gossip and pride and racism and self-centeredness. The reality is that we've all sinned, every single one of us. And for those reasons, we all deserve death and eternal separation from God in hell. That's the bad news. The good news of Jesus Christ is so much better because the good news is that while our just God banished Adam and Eve from the garden he didn't leave them without a plan and he didn't leave this world without a plan for hope because God promised that he would send a savior a king to defeat sin once and for all and until he was ready and the scriptures all the way up until Jesus death and the things that were going on at the temple at the time that men would come and they would sacrifice their lambs as a way of demonstrating their repentance from sin and their desperate need for God unfortunately those sacrifices that bloodshed, only provided a temporary solution a final solution was still desperately needed and our God he had a plan to send a final perfect sacrifice in Jesus and the best news of all is that as John chapter 18 reminds us Jesus willingly walked into a garden as well and this king was perfect and he was spotless there was no guilt that could be found in him anywhere. And that's why as the disciple John says in John chapter one, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what does that mean for us? As the apostle Paul writes in second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, that God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And do you want to know what makes this all so amazing? God paid the price. He sent his son. All hail King Jesus, the son of God. He is the perfect lamb who came and shed his blood and paid a debt that you and I could never pay on our own. And you and I, we receive life and forgiveness and salvation through him, through faith in him. That's his offer. It's free gift to us. But the choice is yours. The choice is yours because this amazing God who willingly gave up his son on the cross is also loving enough that he will not force his love on you. It's your choice. It's your decision to make, which leads to a final question in, that is, that what will you do with this story of the King who hung on a cross? And as John briefly points out, it wasn't just Jesus there. There were two others. Luke goes into a little more detail about them and about their conversation. Likely the plan was, let's make a further mockery of Jesus and let's hang him with two known, convicted, guilty sinners. Jesus in the middle. And as Luke writes, there's this conversation between the three, the one, the one guilty man who turned to Jesus, basically mocking him with the rest of the crowd, saying, you, the king of the Jews, why don't you see what you can do about this situation that we're in? The other, in his moment of desperation and pain, chooses to see Jesus for who he is, that he indeed is the king of kings, that he is God's son that was sent to die, to die in our place. And through his choice, his faith, and by the grace of God, Jesus' response to him was, today you will be with me in eternity. I think the two others represent maybe the situation you or I find ourselves in today. And that is that ultimately we too have a choice to make when it comes to Jesus. To accept Him or to reject Him. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. You know the power of Christ in your life. If not, today can be your day. Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And and maybe that's something that you need to do while you're here this morning. It doesn't have to be complicated. You can bow your head. You can pray, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. I believe that you are who you say you are, and I need your forgiveness and your salvation. And we'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be up front afterwards. We'd love to talk or pray with you about a, a choice like that talk to you about next steps. There's no greater decision that you can make in this life than to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. But what's it mean for the rest of you? Because again, it's worth coming back to a story like this and being reminded, he did that for me. And he did that for you. And we have life. And we have hope through Jesus. And communion is an opportunity for us to celebrate to be reminded of that, to celebrate together as a church family. And if you grabbed the communion elements when you came in, if you didn't, please feel free to get up from your seat right now and, and get those in the back of the room. You know, when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with His disciples, He he did something with them with bread and with juice that didn't make sense at the time. It did for Jesus, not for the disciples, but I can only imagine that after these events and after the empty tomb, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, everything changed. And this special supper, this special time of remembrance that we call communion, is just a reminder of how good it is and what Jesus did and paid on our behalf. And if you take the bread, you know, the bread is a reminder that he was flogged, he was scourged, that his body was placed on a cross and he died for you. He died for me. Let's take in, let's eat and let's remember that in a very personal way that he died for us. And Jesus took the wine, we have juice, and he held it up and he said, this, this is a reminder of my blood. The solution is in the blood. The blood changes everything. And we're reminded that we have life and hope and something very new and exciting through Jesus, let's take it and remember him. Father, we thank you for your son, that you gave your son who gave his life so that we could have life and hope through him, that we're reminded of our purpose, our reason for living, our reason for serving, and because of the life of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in you, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son a king who gave his life on the cross. And we remember that life through the bread and through the juice. And as we reflect on the cross, work inside of our hearts today, Lord. Remind us of your great love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.